Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by mayoral candidate Amara Enya. How are you today? I feel fantastic today. Uh, it's so good to hear. Yeah, this is very exciting for us. Um, I've been following your campaign. The it's been it's been uh, a fun and interesting uh, space. The more mayoral campaign in Chicago, um, <laughs> and, say the least. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And so it's it's really great to um, to have you here. Well, not here. We're actually for for those listening at home to kind of uh, pull back the veil a bit. We're at Harold uh, Washington Library, um, which is great. We've been doing more mobile interviews lately, and so it's cool to get away from, which, if you ever want to meet our cats, they would love to meet you, I'm sure. But um, but until then, we're really ha- uh, thankful to the Harold Washington Library for having us. Um, but, so, I, I'm just, I want to get right into it. I'm really sure. excited to have you here. Um, sure. The first thing that I know I want to do uh, is I want to, There, I have a feeling there's a bit of our audience that maybe are not familiar with your campaign. Um, so just to kind of like give a little context, I'm, I'm curious if you would mind letting us know what, what were kind of the factors that led you to wanting to run for mayor? Sure. So this is this time is actually my second time out. So this so I'm, I'm uh, this is not my first time at the rodeo, so to speak. Um, the reasons for me running this time are pretty similar to the reasons why I ran the first time. So I've worked um, for quite some time in government. I worked in government here in the city of Chicago, and um, prior to that, I just did a lot of work basically across policy areas. So I've always mm-hmm. done everything from economic development to housing to food security, education, and everything in between. And there were always these questions that I had just based upon my own observations in day-to-day life about the conditions in the city. And I always give the example of driving on Madison from downtown to Austin Boulevard. And you essentially see the full spectrum of this city and the disparity in terms of the life of someone living uh, five miles west of downtown and the life of someone living in downtown on that same street. Um, and there are some statistics also that, that support that disparity. So for residents who live on the west side, they will actually live probably 16 to 20 fewer years than residents who live downtown. And that is because of all of the factors, whether it's access to health care, uh, violence, um, public health hazard exposure, all of those things that factor into a shorter lifespan in the same city. And so for me, the question is always, what, why is this the case? Who is making these decisions? Why are they making these decisions? And so my experience working in government and just in my professional life, my day-to-day life, created a sense of urgency that the way things are is not sustainable and needs to be changed drastically from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And so it was that sense of urgency and just a sense of responsibility that I was raised with, that when we see things that are wrong, we have a responsibility to act. That was what drove me the first time and also the second time. Well, and, you know, you find yourself in a really unique position, I, I feel, in, the, in this mayoral campaign, which is that there are a lot of people that have a lot of experience with working with the city of Chicago, but your experience specifically is so unique. And there's also a lot of um, uh, people that are, that are running for the mayor of the city of Chicago that have uh, support from, like, top down. In many ways, your campaign has been, it seems very ground up. Yes. And that also seems to really resonate with your experience um, 
with the Austin Chamber of Commerce and things like that. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that, like what, how the importance yeah. of that ground up has yeah. been for you. Yeah, so you'll probably be hard pressed to find a candidate that has both top level government experience, but also a lot of grassroots experience. And so I, in my professional uh, life, I've been sort of the policy wonk. I've, I worked in the mayor's office. I do you know, data analysis and the, the boring things that seem exciting to me, but apparently not to anyone else. <laughs> um, and so so that level is really engaging with policymakers and decision makers, but my passion has always been grassroots organizing and actually just being connected to people on the ground in their neighborhoods. And so I also work with a lot of community-based organizations, have supported many organizations, have marched with, protested with many of the grassroots organizations that are responsible for pushing an agenda that has um, really tried to center the voices of the people of this city and everything in between. So having worked in the public sector, worked in top level of government, worked in the private sector, managed nonprofits, also worked as an organizer uh, on all sides, whether it was protesting or organizing. It's just the kind of, uh, it's a pretty well-rounded experience that you won't see from candidates who are used to being, having a very top-down approach. Even in my policy work, I believe that the best public policy emanates from the ground up. That, it, that people fundamentally know what they need um, and our responsibility is to actually take what they express that they need and make it happen. And that's a decidedly different approach than the current uh, system that we live in. Isn't that a that myth that people don't know what they need? I need. I don't understand where that perpetuates from. Like, but it's entirely true. And yes. when you live in a city and you see it, you know, like Maureen, you. Um, your experience in Baltimore, especially, probably speaks to that too. Where it's like a lot of these <laughs> cities that have, you know, uh, a certain way in which they've been run. Right. Um, it's really fascinating. The other piece that, and, and to, as kind of an extension to that, something that I think has been really powerful in your campaign and in the way that you've, uh, in your messaging, is this idea of a cooperative economy. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little to that. Sure. Kind of explain it. Yeah, so the cooperative economy is the future. It is the future. We, um, Chicago has, in my view, lagged behind simply because we don't have, we have a, this, this allegiance to status quo that prevents us from really thinking outside the box and moving forward in our thinking, especially as it relates to the issues that we always face. So the cooperative economy, it's, um, I talk about these cooperative economic models. They are essentially models that are much more democratic, whether you look at uh, in the business sector, in the economic sector, looking at housing, looking at even issues of land ownership. Cooperative economic models are democratic models that actually give people, they empower people to be able to have ownership over production. Mm -hmm. It is a way of, if you look at, for example, worker-owned cooperatives where the employees are actually the owners, mm -hmm. they determine their salaries, they determine their vacation days, their paid sick leave days, all of the things that are attendant to work, they actually determine that collectively, which is much different from the current paradigm where you have 10 different strikes going on right now yeah. because workers are trying to fight for some semblance of decency in the workplace. So what worker-owned cooperatives in particular do is they build community, they build wealth, uh, generational wealth, family wealth, community wealth, which has been lacking in so many neighborhoods in Chicago. And it actually expands our view of what small businesses can be because moving from just the traditional sole proprietorship model, the traditional business model, this is another business model that actually creates many more avenues of ownership and wealth building in communities. And so I fundamentally believe 
believe that for our economy to expand and to diversify it and make it stronger and actually to generate more revenue from a practical matter, we actually have to move in that direction with worker-owned cooperatives. The same goes for land trusts. I talk about land ownership is so crucial to community development, making sure communities have a voice. Owning land collectively affects things like affordability, whether land affordability, housing affordability. Housing cooperatives are the same thing, where people are getting pushed out of their neighborhoods and their homes as the city gets more expensive. We need alternative models that can keep people here. So all of that falls under the cooperative economy, and I believe that that's the future of the city. Well, and what I find specifically with the worker strikes that are happening in the city, what I find so I don't know, shocking is how that toxic environment that has led these workers to strike—they're pitting themselves. They're pit, they're pitted against each other. Like yes. I think specifically back to the uh, Chicago Lyric Orchestra strike. Yes, there are three. There are three um, major unions that operate within the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Um, IATSE, which is represents stagehands. Mm -hmm. There's AGMA that represents the singers, and then there is um, the orchestras union, yes. which, of course, the most important one is escaping <laughs> me. But um, <laughs> but um, all of them had separate meetings with the lyric. Yes. None of them were privy to the negotiations happening, and both IATSE and AGMA took significant cuts that the orchestra had no knowledge of yes. before striking. And as a result, everybody lost out on a week, so on a week of wages. Yes. And so I think that you're absolutely spot on, that an environment where workers can communicate, workers can collaborate, workers can come up with what works best for them within the infrastructure of a business model is absolutely the way of the future and, and, yes. and is necessary. It is. It, it is. And I followed that strike closely because I was like, oh, the Lyric Opera is striking too? I, mean, I know. It was right on the heels of the hotel right. strike. Um, and, and what the, the strategy is is to divide and conquer. The strategy is to separate workers and then cut deals, none of which are really beneficial. But because there's these silos that are intentional, you end up taking cuts and taking deals that are actually not necessarily in your best interest. Yep. And so we're talking about what an economy looks like where workers are empowered, where they are actually have some say over the decisions that govern the working world, and where there's basic dignity in, in work. And so we just came off last week the Acero strike, which is the charter school strike. Yeah. And they're striking for the very same things that the teachers in, in CPS were striking for back in 2012. It's the same issues. They want, whether it's a public school or charter school, they want fair wages. They want protections for themselves and for their kids. And the fact to me that just stands out is the fact that the fact that hotel workers have to strike for health care because they get laid off over the holidays as though you magically don't get sick right. over the holidays. That seems like such a basic and I understand the financial cost to the hotels themselves. However, it is a basic need that people have and that you have to strike for that is very telling. So we, the, the, we're moving into an era where it's even more important that workers have a voice in the workplace because we see that there are efforts to curtail that voice and everywhere you look. Yeah. Well, and with hotel workers, like when I was in college, I worked in a hotel. And because of my work in a hotel, I got bed bugs. And so, like, there are, you know, hotel workers striking for health care. There are reasons that hotel workers need health care because sometimes there are health, health risks associated with uh, cleaning many, many. Exactly. Yes. So the fact that it's 
you know, that it's not seen as fundamental is awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that you've also spoken out a bunch to is the nature in which, um, business, big business invests, you know, there was the, the, um, thing, uh, was it a couple or maybe even a month back now of target disinvesting yes. in, in yes. the South side specifically. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, if you felt comfortable kind of speaking to what, you know, how, this is a, an interesting, I'm trying to think how, how to verbalize this question. I have a feeling you know where I'm going, but the, like, how can the, the uh, identities and perspectives that are finding themselves constantly being disinvested in, like, organized to make sure that those neighborhoods are not, you know, left without a target? Because it's like that, it, the, you know, so many people were saying that it was not a matter of, of numbers of there it was clear that there was something more to that that were that what had to do with race immediately it had to do with you know the public recept like the public uh, opinion of and, and I don't mean public as in everyone I don't mm-hmm. mean public how we say public mm-hmm. but the but broad I mean, narrative about a community right which is driven by the ethnicity or the race of that community which has all kinds of connotations about how that community is valued or not in the city yeah, but I mean, and I guess the so here's the like, how does, I mean, when you think about because you think so much about collaborative collaborating on the private in the private sector, um, do you? But and I, the thing that I find interesting about speaking out to something like the target space is there's a degree to which I I hear from you that you still there's a degree to that where you would still collaborate mm-hmm. and, and want to see target invest in that space, and I'm kind of curious like what brings you to that space because it's it's uh you know as a person that's also kind of comes from like the left and and thinking about like wanting seeing big business disinvest and and thinking like well you know screw them like we don't need them but like like it's tempting there's the fence of like we'll figure it out on our own but then there's also like being willing to be open to that, like like how do you kind of reason out that fence? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, the the, the knee jerk reaction is to say, well, you know, bye. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like the and that's a very natural reaction. I think the reality is that we so you have your big box retailers, and private investment takes its lead from the public sector. So when the private sector does not see the city investing in certain areas, well, that's where they take their cues. So we actually have to fundamentally demonstrate our values as it relates to policy, and the private sector will follow suit. And the city, quite frankly, hasn't done that for so long. They prioritize just the central business district. They give most of our public tax dollars away to big box retailers. So they're sending a strong message that that is okay. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is actually create a different philosophy that sends a different message to the private sector about what we accept as a city and our allegiance is to what's in the best interest of our residents. And so as it relates to big box retailers, I always say that they, we already know they have no allegiance to the city or to community. When they were deciding whether they were going to open up their store, they did not say, well, we believe that this area is deserving, and so we're going to locate here. They make a calculation based upon their bottom line. So we have to understand that going in. What that means is we have to put in protections on our end to make sure that we get whatever benefits we can get while not being beholden to their presence. So we should be able to say, we're good with you or without you. 
And what that requires is any location that a big box retailer is going to locate, we should actually be proactive with the small businesses in that area to make sure that they have the supports necessary to be sustainable, whether the big box retailer is there or not. Because those are the roots of the, the foundations of our neighborhoods. It's actually the small business owners. So the city has to do that frontline work already, whether the store comes in or not, so that the economy is strong, regardless of the big box retailer. They also should have had, in my view, an early warning system in place, where, as, as you know, the corporate headquarters, they're starting to figure out where they're going to close doors, where they're going to open stores. They should give the city a heads up, the Department of Planning in this instance, a heads up to say, okay, it's a year out, we're thinking we might close this store, just so that the city can then be proactive about mm -hmm working to how are we going to fill that space what are we going to do to make sure that it's not disruptive the other thing that we should do that we don't do is we should actually have clawback provisions when any public dollars are used so that if you opened up your store and you use public dollars say tiff dollars that and you promise that it'd be you know ten thousand jobs and all the things that get promised if you do not fulfill those promises that you actually have to give back those public dollars that's what accountability is about that way even if they got public dollars we better maximize what they got, and if we didn't, then we should get those dollars back and recirculate it back into our coffers. Those are the things that are not in place now. So when a target says that they're leaving, the decision's already been made a year ago at their corporate headquarters. They didn't give the city a heads up. There was no proper proactive planning in that corridor on 87th Street to make sure that the existing businesses can still be sustainable once the target is gone. And so everyone ends up scrambling at the back end. And the only thing that they can do now is protest or just kind of shows of, well, it, pretty much it's too late. And I think that was what ended up happening. Mm -hmm. Well, and I that's... Fantastic. And it's actually it gives another great um, I want to kind of take a step back and, and give a little more context because I'm not entirely sure if all of our audience. I'm sure that there are people now listening that that do are familiar with with TIFF and, and what that means and especially what that means right now. You know, Chicago very much finds itself in a very specific, you know, there's there are very specific development projects happening that are yes. finding, you know, TIFF seems to run to that for, for some reason, you know, Lincoln Yards I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, I'm like, let's do context. Okay, can we actually talk about the specifics of it first, though? Sorry. The, um, the context. So I, for those that don't know, um, would you mind kind of explaining uh, TIF funding and, and what it's meant for Chicago and, and kind of how it, it plays a hand in Chicago? Yeah, so TIF funding, TIFs are actually tax increment financing districts. They are designated areas that are drawn, and within that designated area, any additional increment, so that's any additional tax revenue is captured, and it is supposed to be used according to state law because TIFs are governed by state law. Mm. The additional increment or the additional tax revenue is supposed to be used to spur economic development in what we call blighted community areas. Those blighted areas are typically areas that without those dollars, there would be no private investment, there would be no economic investment. That's the original use and intent of TIFs. Now, Chicago, unfortunately, has gone far beyond that the, the definition of blight apparently includes Navy Pier mm -hmm. uh, it includes South Loop uh, and a new DePaul Stadium it includes Mariano's pretty much anywhere in the city so we have moved so far beyond the original intent of 
TIFFs that you that it's now seen more as a slush fund for private developers to basically use public tax dollars for their pet projects. That's what we're seeing now, whereas the communities that really need that economic investment have not been able to leverage TIFFs to any significant uh, benefit in most of those communities. And so the latest projects that have come online, for example, is with the Lincoln Yards project. That is a, a proposal to draw, I believe, three new TIF districts on the north side to generate $800 million, public tax dollars, to support what they're calling infrastructure improvements um, on that side of the city. Well, the fundamental question in my view is, why are we drawing new TIFs in that area? That's not a blighted area of the city. Why is it that when these development projects happen, we can just uh, create a new TIF, but we never port TIFs to more challenged areas, we never see the same kind of advocacy to use TIFs for development more challenged communities, but in this case, the mayor has really pushed this project through uh, aggressively to get it done before he leaves, and it just shows how TIFs are used, the difference between how TIFs are used on the north side of the, of the city and in other areas of the city that actually need those TIF dollars. Abs and you know, I want to kind of piggyback on something because the piece that with Lincoln Yards is that what another thing that they're developing with that is the the Live Nation venue, yes. which which you know for the art for arts people that's a huge deal because what's happening is you're see, we're going to see disinvestment in uh, local DIY spaces that yes. you know frequently you know for people that are artists in the city that's not good. it's one of those things where it's like there are obvious like policy level things that um, that this is affected by like seeing. Like communities disinvested, but also like it's it's one of these things where like arts and politics also very much intertwine, and you know it's um, that's that's something that I, I just wanted to kind of add on and say like this affects you too, like obviously not as immediately and and not as like as quality of life but it's it, a huge it's a huge issue. I mean, all of those arts venues. You think about subterranean. You think about like. Uh, Places that I frequented in my younger days, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, they are actually jeopardized because right. it's almost the same phenomenon with the big box retailer that comes in, sucks up all of the business, mm -hmm. and your local small business owners end up suffering and closing because of that. It's the same with these with these arts venues. Anyone who works in theater knows it's not always at the big, you know, well-known theaters. Sometimes it's the storefront. I worked with the storefront front theater that's just, I mean, it's like grassroots theater, grassroots art. And sometimes that's the entry point for so many artists across the city. This is how they get their start. This is like their this is their universe. And so the the Live Nation piece directly threatens that entire ecosystem, Absolutely. in my view. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if if there's disinvestment in these grassroots theaters, then they're going to have to, in order to sustain themselves, they're going to have to charge artists more, right. which then, you know, starts this whole vision. We're seeing this in opera too, where it starts this vicious cycle of prioritizing donors over the community that actually is investing their time and energy. And it's so yes. wild because yes. it's, it's, it comes down to a thing of business sense, which, you know, as a person that is like, grew up liberal not grew up liberal but like became liberal from college <laughs> you know, I conservative any parents and anyway um the, let's not get too much into me the, what, where i'm actually going though is it's it's wild how much of this stuff is you know i think that it's uh there's a a myth that um developing public interest is immediately at odds with business sense and I, I, that's a, that was what was so immediately refreshing to me 
about like the cooperative economy and about hearing the way you speak about it. Um, is that something that that you've felt pushback at all on? Like the idea, do you, does this make sense where I'm going at with this? Like how has the, the way in which you've specifically prioritized local businesses been received from a, like a political sense? I think, so we haven't really experienced pushback on it. Mm -hmm. I think that it's important to distinguish between the bulk of our economy, which is those small businesses, and uh, a lot of pushback that you'll see with corporate, with the corporate-sized businesses, right. so your major headquarters, your Fortune 500s, they all have their place in the, in the economic ecosystem. But where I think there are the biggest and best opportunities to grow and diversify our economy is definitely with engaging with the small business community and doing that not just in supporting the entrepreneurs but again in pushing for these different kind of models of ownership that create more entry points to wealth building and to even actualizing ideas that entrepreneurs have that might not be your traditional business idea we can actually do that as a city and I think that's that's exciting to me like no one wants to talk about the same the same things that we've been doing, um, and what you're, what you hear, even with 21 candidates apparently in the race, is you just don't hear new ideas. You hear complaints about the existing systems, but you don't hear solutions that take us beyond where we are. And I think that's where all of the opportunity exists for Chicago. It's in that visioning with tangible things that can actually move us forward, as opposed to sort of staying kind of hemmed up where we are. That's what I found really refreshing about the way that you've been engaging with the public is that you've the the power hubs that oh, you're yes, doing absolutely. Yes. I, yeah. like I think that there aren't many candidates in the race right now who are actually willing to sit down with future you know their future constituents or, or your, yeah, your, your run like, the city events yeah like the, yeah, the well <laughs> I, the piece that I kind of sorry to steal your space <laughs> it's fine the thing that I am um I always think about with this is, you know, I was talking to someone who wanted to start a podcast and they were like, oh, you know, how do you monetize it? Like, what's the secret? And it's like hard work. Yeah. There's no secret. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's, you know, I think that in the uh, digital age and especially now, and it's, there's a myth that there's like a secret way to do it, you know, and people that are kind of savvy and kind of aware of what's happening, you know, like local businesses are seeing, culturally seeing a resurgence and, 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 and a degree of importance, especially in Chicago. There's a lot mm -hmm. of space for that. Um, but the idea of organizing local businesses and reaching out to spaces for as campaign hubs or, or s like prioritizing events that are directly communicating yes. with the people, that's yes. not new. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and, and yeah. it's just hard work. And, yeah. and I, the, you know, is that something that you realized that it's like, there's, I'm sorry that I don't actually have a real question. Like it's just, it's just one of those things that I, I, I wish more people realized that yeah. it's not, it's not. There's no secret sauce. There's yeah. no like, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, the the power hub closest to us is True North Cafe. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're we're oh. in like the uptown Andersonville okay, area. Yeah. Oh, and like awesome. when we found out that that was one of the power hubs, we were like, we were like. Oh, she gets it. Like because right. that's I mean, of there there are ten thousand cafes up and down Clark Street. Yeah. But yeah. and like with a there's a colectivo that just opened and I'm from Milwaukee and so 
like that's a that's like a whole cultural thing for me. Yeah. But like True North is is very much into like community outreach. Yes. Like they're very supportive of their community. Yes. And the fact that like your campaign very quickly identified like True North is where we need to be. It's like yes. I was just like, okay, cool. Yes. So this is this is real. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's 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 really an awesome space. Um, it's awesome, and we love the idea because it reflects the ethos of what small businesses are for their communities. They're hubs. They're places where people gather, where they meet each other, where you talk and debate, and all of those things. And so the idea of like, for example, on the south side in High Park, we have the Silver Room, which is also a power hub, and that's they do the big block party every year and it's just the the energy of bringing people together from all sides of the city reflects this campaign and you're absolutely right like there's no workaround to hard work and we understood very early on that we were not going to have the advantages of you know millions of dollars in the bank or 40 years of political favors that we could call in or party infrastructure that would be do everything that we needed to do we knew that we were not going to have those advantages and so our work ethic and our ability to be creative in how we campaign was that much more important so i mean i think back to we did start the campaign literally running through neighborhoods just gathering people together and running through different neighborhoods every week just as a way of meeting people and engaging people um, the idea of doing the power hubs the idea of doing a petition party just using the arts community because they're such a part of our campaign and we want things that speak to to the spirit and the arts speaks to the human spirit and so being able to tap into artists who shared their gifts with our supporters, with our volunteers, creates an energy that I think is very galvanizing and is what actually sets this campaign apart from other campaigns. That, you know, they say that um, necessity breeds creativity or something like that. But because we know the advantages we don't have, we had to lean on our own creativity and our work ethic. And I think that has allowed us to be where we are even as our, you know, other people in the race have all the advantages, but they're they're lacking, I think, the enthusiasm. They're lacking the creativity. They're doing sort of the same mold and expecting a different outcome. And well, and I also think a thing that you've used to your advantage is the fact that Chicago is a neighborhood city. Yes. You know, a lot of people talk, and there are a lot of negatives to the fact that it, like segregation is real. Like, but the but what you've also really done is found a way in which you can find those that resonate you. In, a, in different neighborhoods, resonate with you in different neighborhoods. And I, I'm kind of curious, like how basically for, for those that want to do that kind of work, organizing neighborhood to neighborhood, like how, how, what, how did that happen in your campaign? Like how do you think about neighborhoods basically? So I, the, one of the biggest strengths of Chicago is, is the neighborhoods. Now, we talk a lot about how Chicago is a segregated city, but it also is a city where you can get exposure to different cultures just by going to a different neighborhood. And that's one of my favorite, the most favorite things for me about Chicago is the fact that if I want to um, get elotes and feel like I was in Mexico City, I can go down to Little Village. I can get henna up on Devon Avenue. Um, I can get a Hibarito in Humboldt Park. And it's legit. Like these are all different neighborhoods, different cultures. And we don't, we don't honor that. 
Um, we don't honor it in terms of how we invest in the neighborhoods. We don't even honor that in terms of how we market the city of Chicago. We see tourism as restricted to the areas of Michigan Avenue between Chicago Avenue and Roosevelt. And I see all of the gems in the neighborhoods that can actually be tourist attractions for people who want to really experience what Chicago was on a day-to-day -day basis. So we've never really lifted up our neighborhoods. Everyone pays a lip service, um, especially now, because everything is lip service during campaigns. Yeah. But <laughs> there's what? some really, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, but there's some really tangible things that we can do that show that we actually care about all of our neighborhoods and honor the different cultures and, and experiences and histories in those neighborhoods. It's amazing to me how many people, so my experience with talking to friends who don't live here but who have been here before is very much like, oh, I was there for an audition and I went to the Panera on Michigan Avenue and then I, <laughs> and then I took the blue line back up to O'Hare and then I was gone. And it's like, okay, well then you weren't in Chicago. Right. You, went to, you went to a Panera, <laughs> but it was just, you took a plane to a Panera. Right. Yeah. And I, it's, it's it's amazing to me how many people claim they've been to Chicago when really they've just been to the Loop. And yes. don't get me wrong, the Loop is beautiful. It's it's yeah, great. but like, yeah, I don't particularly enjoy spending time in the Loop, but <laughs> but it's it's an option. Yeah. And it's just amazing to me, like when people actually come visit me and they're like, oh, like should we see the Bean? And I'm like, no, <laughs> we don't need to see the Bean. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like let's go to let's go to Little Vietnam. Let's go to Argyle yes, Street. Let's get yes. some killer pho. Yes. Let's go to you know, let's my favorite place to bring people is like the Baha'i Temple. I know it's yeah, not technically yeah, yeah, Chicago, yeah, but it's but it's all Long Lake Shore. Exactly. But it's like it's there's so much more that the city can offer and yeah. Well and yeah. that's the, the you know, something that you're speaking to a lot is something that we've talked a bit about, which is the idea of development without displacement. Yes. Because development doesn't inherently have to displace. The way that it's enacted has very much so done that. Yes. But um but it's an it's an interesting you know, it's there isn't really solid examples of development without displacement yet, but it's it's one of those <laughs> things where I think that people that understand what that means, there's a degree to which they do have hope that it can happen. Yes. And that to me is seems to be really foundational to your campaign, that yes. idea of of just like so many odds against it, but it it's very much possible. Yes. And and I, I'm curious like how how has that been being in that space like how has that felt because it's it's been months now yeah i mean do the months just like fly <laughs> i know this is like a really silly question but no. just like how does it feel to like, be where like you're how at you, how you doing <laughs> yeah right right um well you know it's it is it, it feels you know we feel very much that we are precisely where we're supposed to be um, this campaign cycle has been absolutely crazy, mm -hmm. just by all accounts. And I think we have benefited because we have been very steady and very focused. And you can be steady and focused when you feel, when you are rooted in the why why we're doing this, and when you are guided by the vision, what are we working toward? And that's always been very clear. So it allows us to move in spite of all of the obstacles that we faced. Um, it, it allowed us to really go gangbusters when it came time to collecting signatures, and we ended up with the most signatures to get on the ballot than every other candidate um, mm -hmm. against the odds. It allowed us to really attract the kind of team that's so enthusiastic and so excited about this work. And so we've been moving Moving forward with that vision and the most exciting thing is that seeing 
more people start to believe in the possibility as we move forward. And so now you're seeing this big choice between the past and the future. And we can stay with the status quo and we can go with the establishment and we know what that looks like because this is where we are. Right. Or we can decide that we can move boldly into the future, that we can take the so-called risk, but that it's worth it because of what we can create together. Mm-hmm. Um. I want to ask you about how does it feel this time being in that that unique position of, of this being the second time running like how does it feel this time in comparison to last time the best way that I can describe it is the the first time was uh, it was like the Lord of the Rings I always say this every time it was this band of misfits and <laughs> we had to get this ring to Mordor uh, did not know what the journey was gonna be like but we were just so committed um, that's what it felt like the first time. I think the second time, we, ca- we, we learned a lot of hard lessons the first time. Um, it's sort of like when you touch the stove, first time you just do it, then you discover it's hot. And so the second time, though, there's, there, is, there is a caution, but now we know how to navigate. And so we took those hard lessons from the first time, we incorporated it into our strategy, our how we do this from the very beginning. and. We came back better and stronger and more prepared for the journey. And it feels like the message that we had the first time was the right message, but we were right on time, but early. And I feel that this time the world has actually caught up to the things that we were saying about uh, moving away from the status quo, about being unafraid to challenge the status quo, about a vision for Chicago. And this anti-establishment sentiment is just has there's been a groundswell over the last four years, and now it's like we're we're right on time with the same message that we had last time. I'm wondering how, like, I I was reading your article about how um, the about how your celebrity endorsements have impacted your campaign, yeah. and I'm wondering how like what that's been like. You know, starting from a grassroots campaign where. All of a sudden, you're you're you've got national attention. Like yeah. you've got the whole country watching your campaign. How has that been? How has that changed the trajectory? Like, what is that like? Yeah, yeah. No, it's been it's been amazing. I mean, the 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 beauty of it is that we from the very beginning we had worked so hard. Um, we were so committed and we were doing this work and then it was the perfect timing with opportunity and and timing that was just right. right. So the, the the endorsements, in particular the chance endorsement was sort of out of the blue for us. Um, but the beauty of it was that we, he and I had been in the same organizing spaces though we had never met formally. And so apparently he had been a fan of mine and I was of course a fan of his too, but he, <laughs> Yeah, have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. Right, right. Um, so when he, so he reached out because of the work that I've done over the course of my career. And that's very validating because it shows that it's, celebrity endorsements could be just a thing. Oh, I like this person, I'm gonna support them. Or they could be based on substance. And the reality was that our campaign was so substantive all we needed was the visibility to get people's attention so that they could then see the substance. And so what, we, what happened is the substance was there, the endorsement gave us the visibility that put us on the map to people who perhaps weren't paying attention, right. but the substance of our campaign is what's kept people there and, and retained even more people who are now saying, wow, this is really a campaign that I can get behind. Right. So it's the attraction, but what keeps them there is the actual quality of the campaign. Well, what's been most remarkable, like in terms of me 
you know, talking in conversations just generally about the mayoral campaign. You know, we we were excited about your campaign before the chance endorsement. Yeah. And the, the, it was but, honest to, to completely pull back the veil. <laughs> I was so surprised. Yeah. I, like, I love chance. I've always felt that that, that he's brilliant like, yeah, and yeah, is very yeah. aware of yeah. what's going. But yeah. it just, it was one of those moments where being people that know what it's meant to uh, how like a top-down approach kind of can work and knowing and chances very much always work from the ground up too in every yeah, in every yeah, way and yeah. his music and things like that but there it's just it had been like a couple years since <laughs> yeah. since he released you know we're sitting in Harold Washington library like yeah. since his you media beginnings like yeah. it's been and yeah. so it's one of those things where it's like man I really hope he doesn't go that other way you know what I mean yeah. and so to see that really thought because it's such a th- it was such a thoughtful yeah. piece and well and yeah. so what's Sorry, yeah. yeah so what has been what what has been so amazing about that endorsement is like yes like it is definitely a high profile thing but what it's allowed me is being like oh yeah you know i'm really excited about this person really excited about amara enya and you know it'll be like oh remind me who that is again and it's a com- it's a really just easy conversation yeah. starter yeah. it's just like oh um She's the candidate who's endorsed by Chance the Rapper, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, that's right. What's what's her deal?" <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's that's like, the value of it. Exactly. Whatever it takes to hook people in, if it's taking you <laughs> ch- chance to get on the radar, fine. Because now we've got their attention, and he reaches such an audience that we want to reach. Like we are not just concerned about the likely voters uh, in the election. We are concerned about everyone, and we think that it's good when the seventy percent of folks who did not vote in the last election actually mm-hmm. get involved. So our campaign has been very intentional about reaching out to people who, uh, there's so many people who tell us, I never paid attention to politics until your campaign, or I never voted. And we have them working on our campaign in some instances that have never voted, but they just believe in it. And this is the first time they're getting engaged. And I think, and that's a huge deal for us. I think it really took things falling apart for for people to realize how important it is to get yeah. involved and mm-hmm. like while things should not have fallen apart it is like um, it is it is amazing to watch the pieces get picked back up yeah, yeah. i want to yeah. talk more about the idea of carving out an audience because that is that is i think what what uh, a lot of chance has done in, in his in his growth and um, a lot of people that I uh, including you a lot of people that I deeply respect have done is they they have that degree to which they've they have in their toolkit the ability to carve out an audience from being able to go into a, a space that is mainstream and come back out of it with you know a larger following yeah. I'm kind of curious is there a way in which you think about that that has led to that success in doing that um or yeah does that make sense in terms of like carving out a new audience yes well yeah i mean so we we've we're almost just broadening our audience Mm -hmm. i think that our message and our campaign will attract people the beauty of it is that it we attract so many different people like there was the guy who was maybe 88 years old and he said something about how he told his son, who's I think 46 or 47, that he better vote for me. And his son is like, well, I already was planning on voting yeah. for her, but thanks for the advice, Dad. <laughs> so it's just th- those kinds of um, anecdotes where you have this multi-generational appeal, where you have people of 
all different races, ethnicities, backgrounds who believe in our unifying message, which is about the fundamental things upon which we can build on for the future, that there are things that we pretty much all want the same things, regardless of where we are in the city. Um, it's a unifying theme that appeals to a, such a broad audience. And in our campaign, even in the supporters, you can see that broadness, where we have such a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, both team and our events, and they feel like Chicago. And that's what we want. We want this campaign to feel like Chicago. Um, and we've been able to do that so far because the message resonates with so many different voices in the city, particularly those who haven't been, who feel the government hasn't really, really been responsible or who are looking to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to folks across the city. Well, we have a few minutes left before we have a few minutes left. Um, so the last thing I want to ask, one of the things we talk about a ton with makers and, and people making art and stuff um, is what it means to be in Chicago specifically doing what they're doing. Um, and I have kind of a, a derivative of that question for you, which is what as as an individual and as a political figure what has the city of chicago meant to you what has it meant to me the city is it's <laughs> it has played such a role in shaping pretty much every aspect of my life since I came back here from college. So I went down to U of I, Urbana, um, spent a few years there and came back. And, st and when I came back, I came back working in the mayor's office in Chicago, largely because, again, of the questions that I had about why the city was the way that it was. And so my entire life since I came back here has been problem solving. It's been trying to create solutions for all of the issues that affect our day-to-day -day lives. And that, I mean, it's, and it's nonstop. So, you know, you can do it, and I've done it at the government level, I've done it at the policy level, I've done it in organizing, I've, it's pretty much all-consuming. Um, and part of the reason is because there's so many issues in Chicago that need to be addressed. And so you, you can't even focus on just one thing because every time you look around, there's 10 other things that, need to be, that we need to be addressing in this city. And so it's all-consuming. It's shaped everything that I've done over the last several years. Um, it has pushed me to getting involved in politics f from the lens of a person who never believed or never dreamed, it's not something that I dreamed of. I've, I'm not the kind of person who ever wanted to be in public office or who dreamed of becoming a politician. Quite the contrary. But being in Chicago has pushed me into a space that quite frankly is out of my comfort zone, but it's worth that because of what we can possibly do in the city. There's so many opportunities to build the kind of city that reflects our values. And so it's worth taking the risk and it's worth taking the hits and it's worth um, doing what hasn't been done before so that we can potentially have a different outcome here. Cool. Well, thank you. Um, so yeah, the last thing we do with all of our guests is a one minute plug for anything they have upcoming. Sometimes that's very obvious, like letting people know maybe where they can get involved with your campaign yeah. um, or any upcoming events. But otherwise, we also love hearing any uh, shout outs to other folks that are doing dope work um, or any media that you're consuming personally, self-care, otherwise music, movies, TV shows, things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would I would definitely take time to direct folks to our website amaraenya.com. We have wonderful platforms for people to get involved. 
Uh, we're also on social media on all of the internet, so your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and that's always more fun. It's a little less stodgy than the typical uh, political uh, spaces. But I, I just want to take time to recognize the folks who do this work, uh, the organizing work and working in communities. It's not easy work. Uh, I see this campaign as amplifying those voices and just supporting that work. And so I want to, especially as we get to the end of the year, just to honor the people who are fighting fights on behalf of others and the people who believe in service and to support them. And you know, when you see them, support them and ask how you can help. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I would, I give them my time to, to honor and support them. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. I've been Daniel Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is to head over to scopymag.com. That's our website. We post all of our podcasts and articles there. You can also find us on social media on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called Scopy Magazine. We also have a Facebook group called Sounding Board that we love and adore, where we talk about local arts, local politics, and astrology memes. Plug in the astrology <laughs> I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr under Scopy Mag and listen to the podcast, the one you're listening to right now under Scopy Radio in most podcast places. And I'm here, as always, to talk about the importance of subscribing. If you head to our website, scopymag.com, and go to our subscribe page, there are a couple ways that you can do that. The first is to sign up for email blasts. This is huge because even though we post across social media platforms, Facebook buries our content. So if you want to see 100% of what we're doing and not just 30% of it, you should sign up for those email blasts. The second thing you can do is become a member. For as little as $5 a month, you can help us keep our lights on and pay our artists. If you're in a position to do so, there are some cool incentives associated with that, so please give it some thought. Also, if you are a business or an entity or just have something fun to say and want to advertise with us, please feel free to reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So give a little, give a lot, and if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep. <laughs>